Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. Yes, that could mean you too. The workouts have been designed to fit into your life so you can move when you can. The 15 minutes you can squeeze in before work. The 20 minutes you get to yourself while the baby naps. The half hour you can spare at lunch. There's a routine for you no matter what your day looks like. A reminder as well, this is included in your Mum Mia subscription. If you are a Mum Mia subscriber, you already have access to Move. Download the Move app and log in with your Mum Mia login. Head to move.mamamia.com.au and use code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. The principle was that the children were not getting divorced. I was. From Mamma Mia, I'm Mia Friedman and you're listening to No Filter, candid conversations that count. Chloe Shorten has attracted a lot of attention over the last few weeks. She's the wife of Bill Shorten, who will potentially be our next Prime Minister. And many have actually said that uh, during this campaign, they wished they could vote for Chloe, people from both sides. She humanises Bill, is what people say. She makes him look good, not just aesthetically, but because she's smart and warm and funny. And for a politician with very low likability numbers in the polls, Chloe's ability to shine a positive light on her husband is a major political asset. Chloe herself is a businesswoman, an author, the daughter of former Governor-General Quentin Bryce and a mother of three. As a kid, she dreamed that she'd grow up, meet the love of her life, get married, have kids and grow old with that same person. But like one in three marriages, Chloe's life didn't work out that way because her relationship fell apart. That's how in her mid-30s after being married for 10 years, Chloe found herself a divorced mum of two kids. Nobody in her family had ever been divorced before. Her parents have been married for 55 years and counting. So Chloe was navigating being a single mum when she began dating Bill Shorten. He was a junior minister at the time, and together with Chloe's two kids, they became a blended family. Soon after, they had a daughter together. Clementine was born in 2009. Chloe and I I first met in the weirdest way a long time ago. I was uh, very junior. I'd started working at Clio magazine and she was a freelancer in Queensland who was helping me put together the annual 50 most eligible bachelors issue. So that was a really terrible job for two young single girls to be working on. And we had this conversation about two years ago after she'd written a book called Take Heart about how to navigate modern step families. Here's Chloe Shorten. Hey, with any book that's personal, it's not just your story, it's the story of people around you. So when you first flagged the idea with your family of origin and your family that you have created, how did people react? Kids were really supportive and were actually, I had to kind of tone them down about it a bit. My husband was a little bit nervous, but very confident that it, you know, that I had an important story to tell. And my siblings were really worried about what I was going to say about them. <laughs> <laughs> what about your mum? Oh, my mum was great. She, she, was she kept saying, yeah, or, you know, I, I would ring her and say, do you remember this? And she would say, oh, yeah, it wasn't that, it was this, you know. So she was actually kind of giving me a little bit of detail because she's got one of those elephant memories. When you were a little girl, did you grow up wanting, dreaming to be part of a blended family? <laughs> Yeah, nah. I thought that I was going to be doing exactly what my parents did largely. And so I thought, well, I'm going to 
you know, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to marry this type of person and then I'm going to have this kind of life and this many children and, you know, all of their names were picked out and you name it. But um, that was when I was about 12 and then by the time I actually got married, I had grown up a little bit. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a very, it was a devastating thing to have a marriage end and it's very difficult for everybody around you really. I didn't realise you came from such a big family. You're one of five or six Five. Was there any divorce in your family? No. Well, I was the first of our, my generation, but then there were. I, I subsequently found out there was a, you know, an auntie here and a great uncle there, and even someone a bit further back than that. So, but in your immediate family, in my immediate family, you were breaking ground. Yeah. Are you the youngest? No, I'm the fourth out of five, which is kind of nothing in the pecking order because you're not the littlest and you're not the oldest and you're not really a middle child. You're just nothing. You're just sort of the four. It's the lint. (laughs) (laughs) And not the chocolate kind. (laughs) What was your memory? Because I'm from a blended family, Mm. so uh, but I didn't even grow up thinking of it like that. In terms of pop culture, now, Mm. of course, you've got modern family and so many depictions of of blended families, but Brady Bunch was really the only one I can think of, and that didn't Mm. seem to be a blended family, did it? Mm. No, there was Eight is is Enough as as well. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Mm, Eight is Enough. That's right, with a stepmother. Yeah, yeah. And largely, it's either they are big picture, you know, epic fails of, you know, Disney stereotypes or, or, you know, the Brothers Grimm, or they were... um, Overly romanticised shows like um, uh, like the Brady Bunch. I mean, nobody ever ever referred to um, Mrs. Brady's uh, former husband. Do we know whether or not he or Mike Brady's or former was, former you know, wife? They were always yeah. very clean depictions of, yes, of, of right. families, weren't they? Even in Cinderella, yeah. there was no pesky biological mother no. hanging around. No, or or you know just. And the sort of stereotyping is very unhelpful. So when you have role models of any kind, you can you can start to peg what you're doing, um, you know, to them. And that's really what I was looking for with the book. I was looking for where are the stories that show the outcomes are going to be okay? Where mm. are the stories that will give me this confidence that if I do things in a certain way, the likelihood is that the children will, you know, will thrive and you know more than survive they'll thrive and be healthy happy kids and it was very hard to find that you know there was lots of examples and stories about those first few years you know when people actually remarry or or divorce and then go off and you know become sole parents there's a lot of personal accounts and then there's a lot of deep research clinical research and extraordinary work done by these people um, all over the world, and particularly here in Australia, we have some serious experts on on blended families and um, non-nuclear families. How common not is it in that. Australia? More than two in five kids lives in a uh, non-nuclear family environment. So it's, you know, largely 43%. And finding out exactly how many people we're talking about is really difficult because when we look at the statistics, they're based on, um, you know, largely the census and other research which doesn't necessarily give us all the information we need um, because a lot of people don't want to label themselves. Mm. And that, again, is about the stereotyping. They won't want to, a lot of people won't fill out a census form saying, I am a part of a step family. Or, because of know. the stigma. 
Yeah. Mm. You were married quite a long time. So you mm. got married when you were 25, had your kids at, what, 29 and a couple of years in your early 30s. Mm. Mm. And you didn't get divorced or you didn't separate until after, what, it's 16 years you were married? That's right. We were together all, all together. Chloe, that's a long time. Mm, like certain. you say long marriages are not a given in your book mm. and this idea that we all think it's going to be happily ever after. Mm. But that is a long innings. That's that longer had. than the average marriage. The, the, I mean, I, I, that, that was not the whole time we were married. We were married for 10 years and together for another six years before that. But even in that time, you know, the average marriage in Australia now is about 12 years. And it's interesting that um, the, the divorce rate has actually tapered off. We've actually got lower divorce rates now than we had 10 years ago. When your first marriage ended, you talked about, in the book, you talk about how that impacted on your identity. Mm. How, how was that for you? Well, I suspect for everybody, it's a a loss, a massive change, and then there is a sense that, well, for me, um, oh, okay, well, that that didn't work. Why didn't that work? Um, What was it that I brought to that situation that, you know, that I can learn from and I can teach my kids in particular? You need to look at, if you come from a blended family, what the um, lessons are so that your children don't have potentially unstable relationships themselves. So... Relationships of any kind, family um, raising children, it's all about stability. It's not about mm. what the what the family form looks like. So I think um, I stopped being hung up on the form and started to really look deeply at the functioning of the relationship and the family. But, you know, I, I suppose when a marriage ends, the two parties are at a point where they agree or where one person decides that it's come to the end of the road. But for the kids... I don't want it to end. I mean, mm. assuming it's not a, a situation where there's violence at home or it's a, a, a horrible situation, you you write about your children grieving it like like a death, the end of their parents' marriage. Mm. How do you move forward with your life without trying to hurry the children through their stages of, of mm. grief and processing? That's a really great question. Slowly, patiently and um, consistently talking, asking questions, seeking advice. I think we have a an idea that we don't really need these coaches to help us to um, establish our families and get really great habits, that we can just do it by instinct and by sort of reflecting on our own childhoods and things. But as society changes, you have all these other um, big, big things that impact on your, on your family life and behaviour from the outside. So we should be learning as we go. And I love the idea that we should all have, whether it's a first marriage or a second marriage, um, a coach, you know, people who can help us, um, good resources, good books, investing in preventive maintenance, I call it. And so for the children, that was largely about making sure that I had a really good expert advice, um, good expert advice. Do you mean and in the that, form of a counsellor? Yeah, in the form yep. of a, a, a family psychologist who was excellent. Um, also lots and lots of books. You know, I was reading, I was online, and then I started to kind of start to become really quite discerning about what I would take from some of the resources. And so what, what ground rules, I guess, did you put in place with their father so that they would maintain a strong connection to him? 
Oh, look, it wasn't really ground rules for him and I wouldn't want to speak for him. But um, it No, was, I mean, I it, don't mean ground rules for him, but I mean ground rules for how you two behaved in front of each other, how much the kids spent with him. Like, how did you navigate that whole process? The principle was that the children were not getting divorced. I was. And so the children's, uh, you know, um, relationship and... Uh, um, you know the the love and care for that uh, for those kids wasn't to minimising change, minimising as much of the change as we could. And, and how did you how did you do that practically? That's complicated, how did you and it took change? well, it took such a long time. I mean, I'm when moving moving close by, but for some people that's just not possible. And mm. I, and so my story is not necessarily as helpful as it need. You know, as it could. My story is not everybody's story. But for for me, it was about marshalling as many resources as I could, managing resources, minimising change, and I wasn't really that good at that. And um, initially I was, but then there was a lot of changes at once because the baby came along. So explaining as much as possible and ensuring that the... um, uh, that I was reinforcing the love and bond between them and their parent and their dad, so that ha- and that has not changed. But it's taken time and it's taken a lot of um, maturity and commitment on on the behalf of three adults to do that, um, as well as the support of family around us. If you have, if you're remarrying remarry- or you, you know you're you're coming out of a marriage, and you have an extended family that is helpful and supportive and understanding that has a great benefit for those children and grandparents in particular have a huge role in stabilizing children in both of these situations and so we're really under i think undervaluing or under recognizing just how incredibly crucial grandparents are grandparents step grandparents you name it mm-hmm. um, and i was very fortunate that i had a an, an excellent um a um, mother-in-law and um uh, my parents were fantastic too. The most nerve-wracking moment really is sitting down and telling your kids. How did you prepare for that? With the experts' advice, I actually. And what had, was that I advice? actually had a script. I ah. actually had worked out a script of what, what to say, where to go when this came up. I'd actually prepared FAQs. You know, frequently asked questions. I am such a girly swat, as my editor calls <laughs> me, um, uh, that I had really researched what it was that I should say. So, and what is best? I wanted practice? the benefit of that to to apply to other people. Well, um, it it was all scripted to those kids. It wasn't just you know one size fits all. So it was largely sure. about taking things very slowly, explaining that it's um, you know that. It's not their fault. It takes a very long time for children to process that they are not the ones responsible for what happens in the relationship of their parents. And so, um, you know, uh, really focusing on that and on minimising the change and explaining as much as possible that, that their parents are there to love them and cherish them and look after them regardless of the fact that they're not living together. They are hard conversations, very hard conversations, but if you look at it through a child's eyes, it's about reassurance um, and, and security and stability, and for them, really, that's what they're looking for. We, there's a lot of research to be done still on the outcomes for kids over time, um, you know, but I did look at a really amazing longitudinal study that was done in the US that looked at uh, grown-ups, you know, 30, 40 years down the track of some of those that first wave of children of divorce, and 80% of them f- are fine, you know, thriving, happy, healthy, ordinary people with uh, um, functioning relationships themselves. The 20% who don't fare well, 
don't fare well because they have resources taken away from them. And for a lot of people, it's, you know, single mums who become quite impoverished. It's lots of change at once. So they have to move to a smaller house. They have to, you know, things are, there is loss compounded on top of mm. the loss of their parent being there. So How did you determine um, custody arrangements? Because that's something that most people find very difficult. Well, that, that took time and it's not really, I, I don't go into that in my book right. out of respect for their dad. Sure. But um, needless to say that years on now, we have lots of shared activities together, including, you know, we celebrate all the kids' things together and um, and that, that, that does take time and commitment and maturity. Because that's everybody's ideal, isn't it? That. The, the yeah. idea of, yeah, of conscious uncoupling and yeah. that you will still be able to come together. But in most cases, that's just not possible in those early years, is it? Yes, especially where there has been, you know, abuse or violence, which is also, you know, I was listening to a Somebody talking this morning, a woman from the University of Adelaide on the ABC radio speaking this morning about the number of uh, uh, assaults that are um, uh, presenting in Victorian, oh, was it Australian hospitals? Anyway, some huge amount, 20,000 or something a year, and 10,000 of them are related to um, intimate partner violence. So we've got a long way to go towards supporting, I think, you know, men in the community. Um, most Australian men are absolutely fabulous, gorgeous, like my husband. <laughs> but, you know, we've got a long way to go to support the entire uh, subsystem, I suppose, of, of each one of these families. And um, I'm, I'm hoping a bit of a step in that direction. In terms of your status as a woman, you went from your identity as being a married mother of two in your community mm. to being a single mother. Mm. Did you find you were treated differently? Uh, in very subtle ways and probably only and only afterwards, but I found things like the expectation that being a, a sole mother with two kids, that I was um, under more pressure to uh, perform well in the workplace because even though nothing changed in, in terms of my daily um uh, you know, commitment to my my job and my work. It was this sense that, well, she's you know she's separated or she's on her own with kids now. It must be harder, and therefore, uh, we you know we should maybe pull back on this bit of giving this responsibility. Or they were very subtle. Um, did you appreciate that understanding, or did you find it patronising? No, I, I I was quizzical about it because there wasn't any change in my capacity. Uh, other than my time commitment, you know. For you. What but about socially? Socially, uh, a lot of people surprised me and some people really disappointed me. And I think that that's the, um, one of the great learnings in, in any lessons in any uh, big change experience that you have. You know, there are some people who will delight you who you never would have expected. Um, and then there are some people who will let you down and, and you, you wouldn't have expected that either. I think that's something that surprises a lot of people. They think about ending the relationship. They think about the impact that that will have on the kids. They will think about the practical sides of where they're going to live. But few people realise, I think, how dislocating it can be socially because so much of your life is built around you as a family unit and you as a couple. Mm. So 
from your relationship with your partner's extended family to, you know, couple mm. friends that you have, mm. all of those things really shift, don't they? And they're all they very do. much disrupted. They do for you and for, and for your partner. But for your children, there must be continuity. And having a commitment to that is, is really vital for the children's well-being, that they have this sense that they will still see their cousins, they will still do those other ritualistic things, that uh, traditional things that they had done before, and that can be really tough. So the people who often can provide the greatest um, bridge to do that are, you know, siblings and, you know, aunties and uncles and, and grandparents, and uh, that um, shouldn't be understated, I think. Dating as a single mum. Little girls don't grow up dreaming of that either, do they? No, I don't suspect <laughs> they do. I don't think little boys do either. And again, it's not this stuff is not reflected in any of our no. general mainstream, you know, content and popular culture. So, so how did you go about that? How did you go about when when you met Bill introducing him to the kids? Very slowly, and with no expectations, and with no um, uh, pre um, kind of. Um, labels on what the relationship was at that time. What we did, did you just were like explaining with the friends? Were out. Yep, yeah. that's right. And um, were they very that, protective of you? No, they weren't really. No, <laughs> they were just happy little, happy right. little. Um, you know, and I suppose that they probably would have had confusion at some time. But we were taking advice along the way, and um, so I think we're fortunate that we did that. I think we're really fortunate. One of the things that, that you, you write about at the end of the book, you, you talk to Bill and, and ask him what his, adv- like, what his advice would be, mm-hmm. and he said, be their friend, Yeah, which is so interesting because it's the polar opposite of what parents are usually advised to do. It's like, don't be their friend, be their parent. Yeah, but with trap, a step trap parent, for young players, that one. Yeah, mm. so tell me the difference about that and how a step parent needs to approach kids. Um, the great phrase that I heard a woman called Patricia Papernow, who's one of the sort of gurus in the field, um, she said it's connection before correction. Before you assume the role of the disciplinarian, whether you, particularly for, for the, the bloke, um, which is often what society expects of a male in a household, is to make the connection, to be a friend and just get to know them get and build trust with one another and a relationship. And then... If that child, depending on their age, of course, too, then um, over time builds up that relationship that can lead to that person, you know, the other person making some rules or reinforcing those rules, that's great. But that doesn't always happen and you certainly should avoid going into it with those expectations. Similarly, stepmothers have a really complicated time of it because society expects women to go into relationships and be the nurturer and the organiser and the domestic you know, um, arranger. And naturally, women tend to fall into that. And that is a, um, a real trap and can be very difficult and create all sorts of tensions because the children really aren't necessarily wanting that. Um, and yet that's often where she falls. So the, so the um, partner has to try to help her not do that. And then she, again, makes the connection and the friendship. And Sometimes that doesn't even work out. Sometimes, you know, there is no great deep bond between a stepchild and a stepparent. And as long as there is respect and kindness there, then that's 
that's good enough. Mm. So it's really understanding, taking the pressure down for those people, for the, whoever it is that's the new person, and also respecting, allowing the, the original parent to have a bit of space with those children on their own. So going from that um, sole parent time where you're actually really in, intensively in that relationship and almost exclusively because you're focusing on their well-being, um, going from that into a relationship, I, it's important. I've learned it's important um, from all the studies that I've read that that little bubble can have time on its own as well and that that shouldn't, even though sometimes it makes the other person feel excluded and on the outer, that that's okay and that the relationship between all of them can still be healthy with that involved with that in mind. You and Bill dated for about 18 months before you moved to Melbourne with your yeah. kids, which I imagine was um, difficult in itself, a difficult decision mm. between having them stay close to their father and, mm. and then moving to Melbourne. Mm. Um, and then you guys married in 2009 and had your daughter Clementine together in 2010. So I wanted to ask you about that. It was your third child and his mm. first. This is this mm. is quite common in blended families that mm. you've got someone who's done it before uh, mm. and someone who it's all brand new. Mm. How different were your experiences and how did you manage it for your two first two children? Well, you know, there's that vague sort of fugue state of memory that I have about those first few <laughs> months with the baby. I think I've blocked a lot of it out. And, and that sleeplessness that is so terrible. I do remember having all of them in bed with me quite a lot. And, yeah. um, you know, so there was desperate to get sleep and going past my bed and patting my bed, my pillow, I love you, bed. <laughs> and um, so that's really the first six months. That's what I remember the most. Um, adjustment of, of of any kind with with a new baby, even with a nuclear family in a mm. nuclear family. Um, let's let's say. Um, what the are the extra family. challenges for a blended? The extra family challenges because what we had was the age gap too. So we had that seven eight year age gap. So the children were old enough to realise that that had some benefits them being older because they weren't, um, you know, going through that terrible sort of toddler toddler baby rivalry, but they were uh, adored her and were treated her like the little precious little deity and um, that bond of them being a little bit older and loving that baby so much was really quite a, you know, a gift. So it was like, it, it was, sounds like it were, Clementine was quite a binding factor yeah. in the new family unit. Yes, and I, and I put that down to the approach that we took, the extended family support we had, and the age, the ages of the children. When you say the approach that you took, what do you mean? The approach being going into it with this really <laughs> nerdy study, you know, research. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know, laboratory method I used. Well, I was constantly ringing people and asking them things. I'd, I'd, I'd get onto the raisingchildren.net website, you know. Oh, look, I'd be sitting in the pantry and the children would be sitting at the dinner table and there'd be, you know, the baby in the high chair and the two little ones and I'd be going, how do I handle this question or whatever? So I'd go into the pantry, which is one of those sort of walk-in pantries, close the door, get onto my, <laughs> get onto my laptop and type into the raisingchildren.net website. I am sure that there are questions in that website on that 
resource that are just my questions that they've rehashed because <laughs> they're so bizarre. Um, so yeah, you know, it's that it was that um, that SWOT approach that I took that I think was helpful. You know, I've, I, um, I'm trying to find some examples for you, but things about um, conversations, not shutting down conversations in you know, oh well, we can talk about that later, or take going down the rabbit hole with the kids whenever they went there and and allowing them to go as far as they wanted to go with it, which meant you know lots and lots of questions. And then the answers would be, just hang on a second, I'll come back to you. <laughs> yeah, so, I think that's you know, important sometimes. You yeah. don't have to answer every question in the moment. But no. in terms of um, you, you kept seeing a family counsellor or you, mm-hmm. have you yeah. been back yep. and forth yeah. to navigate? And, and, and I've actually added other experts along the way of people that I will speak to um, either in a formal or an informal sense when things come up. So I think that families, if they can possibly get those resources, and a lot of them now are, um, are in, you know, in libraries and on the web, and that is absolutely critical to, for us to say to ourselves, actually, we don't have all the answers. This is not easy. Parenting is a great privilege and a great challenge, and it, it does not come naturally. You write that you used this research to make sure your family was moving through the stages correctly. Mm. What 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 did you find the stages were? Well, I suppose there's that sort of they're often the stages that you have in in a first marriage too, which is the sort of the fantasy phase. You know, this unrealistic expectations about how things are going to go. People don't necessarily tell you. That's informed largely by your own childhood, your own experiences, and lots of movies you've watched. You know, books you've read. So there's that. I suppose, busting that myth, really, busting all those myths next and coming down to the point where you know that where the difficulties start to bubble up, which is another another stage, really, is starting to understand what they are and recognise them for what they are, then mobilising and um, r- realising that you need some support and some help and expertise and then moving through the stages of um, the action from that mobilisation stage, acting on it, implementing them, uh, recognising that you're not um, that you're not perfect, and that these these things are fluid and take time. You don't need to stick to traditional roles of a, of a nuclear family. Trying to replicate them won't work. You know, largely, a step family, a blended family, is not a subset or a subcategory of a nuclear family. They come in all shapes and sizes, and in Australia, it's the functioning of the family, not what it looks like, that's the more important thing. So focusing on that function, understanding that there are stages that you go through and that you'll come out the other end stronger, happier, healthier, with more resilient kids. I think the most interesting thing that you you said was was that it took time to get to that point where you can celebrate those milestones together mm. and mm-hmm. you can be... You know, the heat goes out of it, I suppose. The heat goes out of the breakup mm. and you remould your family around this new shape. Managing expectations as you go into it is really important. I think one of the things that I had learned um, from uh, one of the uh, specialists was to lower your expectations of how long it takes. It takes five years, not five months. You know, it can take three years, not three months. And rushing through only puts more pressure on you and your partner and the kids. So slowing down, taking the pressure off, not trying to uh, conform to other people's ideas of how you should be creating and supporting your family, asking people for help and support, 
reaching out. It's a very difficult thing to do. Women do it all the time when they have their first babies, but they often have, you know, maternal and child health nurses to help them do that, to put them into networks. I'd love to see um, uh, support, some sort of support networks in the community for um, for blended and step families and for sole parent families. Uh, there are 63,000, according to the census, grandparents in Australia raising grandchildren. I'd love to know who it is that reaches out to those people. So it's understanding that um, it, it doesn't just take a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise a family mm. of any kind. And so... Um, there is, uh, you're right, there is no one size fits all. But for anyone who is experiencing um, either creating a new family or perhaps evolving from the shape of one family to the next, take heart. Your book is a fantastic place to start. Chloe, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to No Filter. If you are feeling uncertain about who to vote for this weekend, may I suggest checking out our daily podcast, The Quickie. They have done a really great episode called Who Should I Vote For? where they go through, uh, our host Claire Murphy goes through all of the different parties and their basic platforms and their basic policies. You can search for The Quickie in your podcast app or follow the links in our show notes. No Filter is produced by Eliza Ratliff. I'm Mia Friedman and I'll see you on Mamma Mia.